This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and joining me tonight we have the always delightful Emma Westwood. Thank you, Sally. <laughs> the fabulous Stuart Richards. Hello, hello. And we've got some... A very special guest back in the cave tonight, which is Thomas Cadwell. <laughs> Caldwell! Caldwell! Oh my God. Before, before I came here, I was like, it's Caldwell. I went through that in my head. That's Sally, no, if you've been a long term <laughs> listener of the show, you will know that mispronouncing my name is I know. overdue <laughs> karma coming my way. That's absolutely We're fine. We're kindred spirits like that, yeah. I feel. Actually, I'm, look, I've enjoyed listening to the show this year, and I will, I will never be self conscious or embarrassed about mispronouncing anything after listening to you all this year. I, I was unfairly treated. Wow. But, um, no, look, thank you for having me. I'm, s- I'm sorry I wandered in by mistake. It's very kind of you to let me sit down and do the show with you tonight. No, it's awesome to have you back. Who is this man? <laughs> I know. He's sitting on the wrong side of the desk anyway, but, um, you know, get used to it. <laughs> Before we go into tonight's features, we have to start the show again on a sombre note this week with um, the passing of great director um, Milos Forman. Yes, it's very, very sad considering we had um, Uri Hertz. Um, Cerise is probably cringing with that pronunciation <laughs> tonight. Um, but uh, Uri Hertz is another um, uh, seminal Czech filmmaker who um, we announced the passing of last week, sadly, a director of The Cremator and Morgiana, amongst many other wonderful things. And Milos Forman is probably a Czech filmmaker that's more broadly known because of his work. He uh, left uh, Czechoslovakia, is what what it was called at the time, in 1968 after the Soviet invasion and went to um, America and made such films as... One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, really, that was... I don't know whether it's um, its Oscar tally has been equaled. It probably has. But at the time, it was... Um, it took the, the five pivotal Oscars and I think the only other film... Silence was of had, the Lambs was the only one that's done that oh, since, Oh, there you I go. Think. All right. Yeah. It was, was during, it? He came to Hollywood during that time when... Um, it was during the new Hollywood era when it was really fashionable to get these European directors in. I mean, Roman mm. Polanski's one of the other big names. Um, but One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is just one of those most incredibly definitive films. And his films always dealt with misfits and outsiders and rebels all throughout his career, even into the 1990s when he was making all those very unusual biopics about people like Larry Flint and <laughs> Andy Kaufman. Larry Flint, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Man in the Moon. Yeah. And if you haven't seen the documentary Jim and Andy, which appeared on Netflix last year about the making of that, you know that uh, Milos Forman was a very tolerant man with his actor Jim mm. Carrey. Um, yeah, beautiful film director, diverse, daring, bold, never did the same thing twice. Uh, he will mm. be missed. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we've got a, a couple of other, other deaths, unfortunately, to talk about tonight. Ali Ermi. Uh, who most people would know as the drill sergeant in uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, who I believe that was his first uh, his first uh, role, actually. Not the very first, but in the first five. In the first, yeah. Maybe his fifth film, yeah. Pretty much defined his career. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't, well, he wasn't actually meant to be in the role. I know that. He was there more as an um, advisor of, because he had come from the Marine Corps and... Um, 
there are many seminal lines that have come out of that. <laughs> lots, lots of that great ones. Film, yeah. He, nobody will ever be able to play a drill sergeant nope. without being no. compared to his performance in Full Metal Jacket. And, and his career ever since then was kind of playing variations of those authority figures. And <laughs> exactly. even in the Toy Story films, he was playing one of the toy soldiers. It was yes. a riff on Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. So he, he just defined that, that part and that, that type of role. Exactly. And um, unfortunately, he died at 74 of complications of pneumonia, which doesn't really sound appropriate. I would have preferred to have heard he got hit by a hand grenade or something like that. But anyway. <laughs> That's a curious <laughs> way of tributing him. But bravo. Yeah. <laughs> and then also uh, Vittoria Taviani. Yeah, one half of the um, the Taviani brothers, the other mm. the other brother who who, who has survived him. The, 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 these guys are an Italian directing and writing team, and their work dates all the way back to the nineteen fifties. Probably best known for the Cannes Film Festival Palm d'Or winning film in nineteen seventy seven, Padre Padrone, and not that long ago they won the Golden Bear at the Berlin International Film Festival mm. for their two thousand and twelve film Caesar Must Die, which did get a small release around mm, Australia. That's right, it did. I missed it. We didn't cover it on the show back then, but um, we should have. Oh, well. R.I.P. Very important Italian filmmakers. So it's a lost world cinema. Mm, It is. So on tonight's show, we will be looking at Wes Anderson's delightful latest stop motion offering, Isle of Dogs. So Isle of Dogs is set 20 years in the future after all the canine pets of Nagasaki City are exiled to a vast garbage dump called Trash Island. A 12-year-old boy sets off alone across the river in search of his bodyguard dog, Spots. We'll also be looking at Israeli director Martin Yeer's first feature film, Scaffolding. So Scaffolding is a coming-of-age story about an Israeli teenager who was torn between two role models, his charismatic literature teacher and his strict working-class father. But first tonight, we will be discussing Sally Potter's drawing room comedy, the party. I almost call it the room then. That's a very different. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see Sally Potter's. I know that would be good, wouldn't it? Version of the room. <laughs> uh, Tilda Swinton. That would be you great. Know, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> Oh, I wish that happened. (laughs) (laughs) So the party takes place in real time during, yes, a party at the very upper class, very British Janet and Bill's home. Janet is hosting an intimate gathering of friends to celebrate her promotion to Shadow Minister of Health in um, the party of opposition. Her husband, Bill, seems preoccupied. As their friends arrived, some of them who have their own dramatic news to share, a soiree gradually unravels. An announcement by Bill provokes a series of revelations that escalates quickly into an all-out confrontation as people's illusions about themselves and each other go up in smoke along with the canapes. The party becomes a night that began with champagne but ends with blood on the floor. The party features an impressive cast including Kristen Scott Thomas, Patricia Clarkson, Timothy Spall and Cillian Murphy. So what do we make of the party? I was waiting for um, uh, Peter Sellers to arrive and do birdie num nums. <laughs> been good. Mm. I was very disappointed actually that he wasn't in there. But no, um, the party. Well, Sally Potter. Um, I was never a fan of Orlando, and I kind of left Sally Potter in the dust with that one, and never went back to her. Um, 
But I, I really enjoyed the economy of this film, that at 71 minutes, it, um, I think there could have been pressure to have made it longer because even the average horror film is a good 10 minutes longer than, and, than 71 minutes. Um, but yay for her to not um, pat it out or, you know, have to, you know, put on any fat to get uh, the, the appropriate running time. Um, it, it, it does play out, even it was interesting, the choice of black and white, it really felt like it was Sally Potter by way of Woody Allen, by way of Roman Polanski. Um, uh, Woody Allen particularly likes to play with black and white, but he will also do those sort of little ensemble films. And Roman Polanski, especially in his later career, has done a lot of those. With Carnage, yeah. Yeah, Carnage yeah. is one example of that. Um, I did, I, did in, I enjoyed the way this, this kind of felt like, and maybe that comes down to the running time as well. It felt like uh, the structure of a short film. Thomas, you'd probably be able to comment much better. You're always uh, immersed in short films. But um, the way that it was, it was, um, it worked up to this this twist, this twist at the end. And often a, a short film will work well in that regard because you don't have as much uh, the luxury of time to build drama and character rapport. Uh, so it really felt like a long short to me um i i i liked it i did like it i don't think i loved it i kind of went in and out with the characters let's just say but i did i enjoyed the the choice of ensemble patricia clarkson is an all-time favorite of mine and i like that she was given this kind of role where she had these great barbed lines because she's always good at delivering those sort of lines. I really enjoyed um, the fact that Bruno Gans, who's, you know, been very celebrated as playing Hitler, was some sort of new age airy fairy. <laughs> he was one of my favourites in it. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cute. And well, one of his defining roles was playing an angel as well. I, oh, well, I, I okay. think it's pretty we, we forget <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Angel Hitler. <laughs> and then everything else is somewhere in between. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting how Hitler kind of manages to trump everything. Um, pardon the pun there, but anyway. Yeah, well. <laughs> but his character's like really... Wants his, check. his character's really interesting because he, as the film progresses, his character kind of holds it all together because yes. he literally directs people around the room and, um, yeah, I loved his character. I think it was so interesting. Did you... What about the, the, the Killian Murphy character? Well, did you feel like that? Oh, really? Did he really? Oh, His no. character stole the show. Oh, <laughs> he was the one know. thing I really loved about it. Really, I, I knew there was. I knew there was going to be a reveal with his character about what his drive was and why he was so pent up, but. Oh, he just went from zero to ten so quickly and I, I, there was something really contrived about his character for me. Yeah, I didn't... Mm. What would we say it's really about, this film? I ask my students that all the time in film, <laughs> in film class. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah. You may answer that question then, Stuart. Well, I think a big part of it is these very different political divides because even though a lot of the um, the, poli the political allegiances of the various characters is never really explained, um, it's, I think that is one of the driving kind of um, things for the film where 
they're sort of debating these big ideas about healthcare and and death and and sort of uh, fidelity. Um, and interestingly, Brexit was happening as they were filming this mm. as well. So it's it's made during a time when they're all processing this huge divide in their own kind of um, various nations. Um, so yeah, so for me, that's what I took from this film: people overcoming these very sharp divides that could easily separate them. Mm. I mm. felt more for me that the core of this was that no matter what sort of wealth you have, what kind of political position you're in, it played on those kind of elements of Greek tragedy where regardless of who we are, there's still these core things of, you know, love, hurt, relationships, you know, no matter your wealth, where your political standing. I thought that was sort mm-hmm. of what really came through for me with the party. But, mm. yeah. Plenty of infidelity and hubris, which yes. is the cornerstones of, of Greek course, tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does play out like that, doesn't it? That, and, and it explores issues of class and, and race and social standing and sexuality. Look, I, this finish, and I sort of <laughs> said to myself, well, that was a delightful trifle of a film. <laughs> and I couldn't get over how much it felt like a stage play. And it was written as a film and shooting mm. it in black and white felt like it was really trying to overcompensate by making it look um, more cinematic, but it felt like a one-act play. And all the characters were so heavily uh, signified specific values to represent and ideologies and, and demographic types that I found it a little, it was a bit too didactic. I certainly enjoyed it, but mm. it, and then I had this horrible realisation on the tram in the, on the way in here tonight, which is it kind of reminded me of a David Williamson play, um, you know, the Australian playwright who, mm-hmm. and, and the film it most resembles is Don's Party, and not just because of the title, but because it's about a group of people one night in a single location. And in that film, which I think stated quite badly, it's a classic of Australian cinema, and in, in the context of its time, it's important, but it's difficult to watch in a contemporary context. Yet all these characters are very kind of signifying specific values, and let's put those two clashing values together and see the sparks fly. And this was kind of a little bit like that for me. Yeah. I enjoyed it fine, but um, I think I would have enjoyed it more if I was seeing it as a stage play. What, do you think that the black and white was a... I, I haven't read any rationale for this, so I'm not sure whether it, that it was to make it more cinematic or it That's was... the best I can come up with. Thematically um, black and white. Or drawing attention to the fact that, yeah, there are lots of shades of grey in all these issues, mm. so I don't know. I mean, it did look lovely, but... I know her rationale with the black and white. <laughs> I, love I know, yeah. I know yeah. it. All right, hit it. Is that Sally Potter has said that she finds it more colourful. Um, I know <laughs> <laughs> oh. But she, her, I know that her intention with this, with this was to have something that was completely stripped back, hence the very intrusive camera shots and why she didn't want it as a play because the audience couldn't be that close to the characters because it does come across as though it should be a stage play. I mean, especially those shots of Cillian Murphy yep. um, in the bathroom. And even the opening shot with Bill putting the um, record on the turntable mm. is, you know, very, very close. But, yeah, her intention with the monochrome was that it's more primal, it's more stripped back. Oh, OK. Mm. Yeah. I could see um, what you were talking about, um, Sally, in that idea. I, I felt that the theme that came out to me was that even um, really intellectual people can be emotionally stupid. Yeah. That was that's what it felt like. She's very to big me. in David Williamson's place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you said because yeah. David Williamson is people either love him or hate him. He's not flavor of the month at the moment. By no, any means. no, 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 not out at of fashion. all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. 
the the music uh, there, there had to be some sort of significance with the music I'm not entirely sure what the what the choices were for did you read anything no, about that I don't know about that music because it was interesting the opening the title track was um, the hymn Jerusalem which is a really um, English hymn. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah they sing so. it over the end of Chariots of Fire, I think. It's, yeah, I mean, that's as yeah. English as it gets, yeah. So it was obviously yeah. there was something trying to play up the Englishness of it, which, as Stuart mentioned, it happened at the time of Brexit, but I don't believe that she actually wrote it before no, Brexit. Yeah. So but it was just The rest of the music was all from all over the world yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, the rest was, yeah, yeah. And I was just wondering, again, if that's a comment on that kind of middle-class thing of a Appropriating music for all around the world and yeah, yeah, but none of them are very middle know. class. No, they were all quite they're all very upper class. Yeah, yeah, yeah very true. Mm. Yeah, especially yeah. In, yeah, in terms of English yeah. upper, cl- upper class. There was class, one yeah. moment that really stood out for me as just being very beautiful was when Sherry, the Sherry Jones character, who plays, I mean, she's she's in Transparent and she plays almost the exactly same character. Um, there's a moment where she's standing outside under the moonlight and there's this kind of hard lighting that gives her this silhouette and she kind of comes out of the alleyway with this sort of really kind of like two-faced almost as she's talking to the Emily Mortimer character. Mm. That for me was beautiful and that was obviously a very cinematic um, moment um, and in terms of the use of black and white, that really worked for me. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, that moment really kind of stood out for me the entire mm. film. Mm. Yeah. Other than, yeah, I do actually remember that moment, but otherwise it wouldn't, it didn't feel like a beautiful black and white film. It did get very stark at certain times, like the lighting got, as the drama, um, you know, got more fraught. Yeah. They, yeah, it got very, you know, um, really harsh whites against black and things like that. But I, I wouldn't have called it Apart from that shot, you're right, but mm. I wouldn't call it a beautiful film. She didn't kind of play with black and white as a form in that way. No, yeah. Mm. Mm. It is a fantastic cast. I mean, if nothing else, you get to see some of the most interesting dynamic actors. And Timothy Spall, fantastic. Yeah. Look, and I, and I, Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah. I must admit, I giggled every time Patricia Clarkson abused Tim, uh, not Timothy Spall, Bruno Grant. Yeah. Yeah. I laughed. It was just great. <laughs> I mean, I, I would happily have Patricia Clarkson abuse me. I, I don't know what that reveals about my personality, but that's I've dreamt about that. So the party is screening in Victoria now on limited release. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Next up, we are discussing Wes Anderson's latest offering, Isle of Dogs. So Isle of Dogs tells the story of Atari Kobayashi, a 12-year-old ward um, to corrupt Mayor Kobayashi. So when all the canine pets of Megasaki City are exiled to a vast garbage dump, Atari sets off alone in a miniature junior turboprop and flies to Trash Island in search of his bodyguard dog, Spots. There, with the assistance of a pack newly f- um, of newly found mongrel friends, he begins his epic journey that will decide um, the fate and the future of the canines. So this has a very impressive voice cast featuring a lot of Wes Anderson's regulars but some new recruits as well, such as Brian um, Cranston. We've also got in there Edward Norton, Bill Murray, the wonderful Jeff Goldblum, Scarlett, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, F. Murray Abraham, Courtney B. Vance, uh, Yoko Ono, Harvey Keitel and Frank Woods. So lots of Anderson regulars in there. Um, 
I personally thought Isle of Dogs was very delightful. What else did everybody think about it? <laughs> I think this is glorious. Yeah. I, I, I tend to be a bit indifferent to Wes Anderson, but when I love his films, I love them to an extent that I have difficult putting into words. And I, I was like that with the Royal Tenenbaums and the Grand Budapest Hotel. And, and having been an indifferent to Fantastic Mr Fox, where everybody else seemed to really love it, I went into this with some trepidation and it really bowled me away. And I've actually gone to see it twice, mainly because I slept through it most of the time the first time because <laughs> I was jet-lagged. But, um, but the second time I saw it, I was quite no pleased with how much film. I did pick up on it. And I was just going to say, as well as the English-speaking cast, it's actually got an amazing Japanese-speaking cast as well, um, most of whom I, I've since read and learned are hugely significant to Japanese audiences. Okay. And apparently Japanese audiences are having a ball with a lot of in-jokes specifically aimed at them. So it's quite an extraordinary cross-cultural film. And watching it the second time when my cognitive abilities were working, I was actually quite (laughs) struck at how I think all of Wes Anderson's films have been heavily influenced by a lot of Japanese cinema. There is a certain type of composition and and arrangement of his of his shots in all his films that remind me of um, you know Tokyo Story uh, Yazuro Uzo's cinema. And, and there's been a lot of talk in this one about how Akira Kurosawa has been a big influence as well. So it seems like a really natural and organic kind of blending of of, of styles. And Totally, this is so ambitious and so weird. Like, there's something really ugly and nasty and disease and filth and rubbish. And yet it also has that incredibly droll humour through the beautiful delivery of, of a lot of the characters. And and although Anderson doesn't do saccharine and I think pulls back on the whimsy as well, there's something really emotionally engaging as well. And I was quite choked up at some of the scenes. Mm. And this is a film with a huge cast of characters. It's told non-lineal, huge sections of it aren't translated for English audiences and there's some very interesting things done there with the power of the power of um and the politics of, of, of translating um and despite all these things that should stop the film from working I think it's one of Anderson's best and probably going to be one of my favorite films this year mm. Mm. The, the his a lot of the Japanese dialogue not being translated I think is really interesting because I've been reading a few reviews and there are some takes that say that this limits the characterization of the Japanese characters when they're not translated for Western audiences but Wes Anderson um, in response to that has said you know we might not understand their language but we can understand their emotions which I think is really really interesting um, touches on what Cerise was talking about last week with yeah. the use of sign language in films like The mm. Tribe and um a quiet place. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I loved the film and I want to go see it again to pick up on um, all of these very stylistic influences and and see this sort of meshing of two cultures. Um, I've been listening to uh, um, Alexander Desplat's score on Spotify and you can see that at the level of the score with the instruments he uses. Um, one little gripe that I have with Wes Anderson in a few of his films is that there tends to be this kind of boys club that kind of manifests in the cast with how kind of the the connections between the characters play out. Um, sort of that kind of core tribe of dogs are all of the sort of the standard Wes Anderson kind of male cast members where a lot of the female voice actors are kind of relegated to the side where... I'm looking at sort of Angelica Houston, Tilda Swinton, Yoko Ono. They're all very silent in the film. They kind of make peeps and noises, but they don't really talk a whole lot. And they're all kind of relegated to these kind of love interests roles. Even uh, Scarlett Johansson's Mm. character and um, Greta Gerwig's character, she does a lot, but she still kind of goes into this kind of romantic position. Um, 
that was one thing that kind of kept on bugging me with this film. I don't um, think he's done any films, has he, where he's really given a decent amount of time to his female characters. It's sort of yeah. he's, 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 he's one major failing, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I love this film, but it was just this one thing that just kept on kind of not sitting very well with me. That that kind of the the Scarlett Johansson nutmeg character <laughs> yeah. really was um, uh, felt to me like uh, Lady in Lady and the Tramp, and yeah. that kind of that vibe with the Brian Cranston. Um, chief character so he's kind of the more mutty dog and she's the kind of elegant lady dog and I think um, even there's all the Japanese stuff in this film that you know is so incredibly layered um, but there's also massive riffing on western storytelling as well and the inter the interlocking of the both so I think that you know the boy and his dog story is something that comes from um, in the New Yorker article that we one of the reviews that I think Stuart would have been mentioning there. Um, she talks about um, a character called Peach Boy, who's um, a folkloric character from Japanese um, storytelling who's relegated to an island um, to fight evil with his band of dogs. And I think there's often this... Um, you go right back to the 1950s, for example. You can go back even further, but something like Old Yeller, the um, American film, which is literally a boy and his dog film. And you go to things like like Scooby-Doo plays on the boy and his dog thing, the Benji, um, what else? Oh, well, Lady and the Tramp, another one. But there's so much of that. So this film I felt that I was... I feel that I do need to go back and see it again. In fact, I could see it four times and I'd still be finding stuff. There was so much in this. Mm. To talk about a film that can work on many layers, it can work for the children, the parents can see something else, and even cross-culturally you can see something else. There's stuff for Westerners who don't understand anything about Japanese culture and there's stuff for Japanese as well and Japanese who understand Western culture. It's just... It's so much. Very, very clever. Very clever. I don't think this is a kid's film. Um, um, I felt that kids could enjoy it, though. I'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I don't think it's a it depends kid's Depends how we define film. kids. I, I think of my yeah. son is three and this would traumatise him. Oh, well, <laughs> so, yeah. he's probably maybe, a little too yeah. Maybe eight or nine, yeah. But I think that the, the, the visuals, the animation is uh, and the, the, the puppetry and everything is compelling enough that uh, children of a certain age maybe, would enjoy it. It's just you know. gorgeous seeing stop-motion puppetry animation. Yeah. Yep. It just, just, uh, and with yeah. the doll and, and the we, doll we grew eyes. up with that aesthetic as well, yeah, so I think yeah. it, there's a certain nostalgia for us as well. Um, and it's probably a very weird, inventive new thing for the generation who's grown mm. up with CGI. So, yeah. um, but it was even interesting that there was quite a lot of violent scenes. There were lots of dog attacks, but the dog attacks just ended up like a roadrunner scene where it was a ball <laughs> of, um, you know, dust and legs and arms going everywhere and then one comes out with part, part of their ear gone or, you know. So even the way that they handled the, the brutality was still something that could be consumed by... You know, children. And even the diseased dogs, when the ones that look really sick, they're not too horrific looking. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and so it was we, funny. I mean, this is a yeah. film I was laughing at yeah. a lot of things that should be really grim. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. still like um, what Thomas was saying, that he found it very emotional, and I did as well. And I think it's that anything where you place an animal in there and it becomes, well, I know personally for me it becomes a lot it more does, emotional than course. if it was a person <laughs> You know, because people are awful. Exactly, animals are lovely. Yeah, I know. It, it's the animal-human bond exactly. that they pay yeah. tribute to. Yeah, it's this deep bond yeah. that we have in there that 
I just think was displayed beautifully in this film. Anthropomorphized animals are always yep. interesting. And I mean, Harvey Keitel as a dog is really great. interesting. But you could pick him immediately as well. <laughs> what Stuart was saying before, how some people have, you know, mentioned that um, not having subtitles for the Japanese language was, you know, whitewashing them a little bit. I kind of, I, I felt that it was more so placing all humans as the other rather mm. than just the Japanese characters in the film and having those animals come out as the main the main characters. You know, we have to remember that they can't communicate with humans and I thought that's what it was displaying to me rather than, you know, pushing the Japanese characters in the background. That's what really came through to me with it. Mm. But it also reinforced the problems with translation. Yeah. There's no true translation, there's variation. So that the mm-hmm. bits where the Frances McDormand character narrates what's going on, <laughs> yes. you can tell she's throwing in her own responses and yeah. reactions. And it's and and, and, and the, the one really interesting detail that's mentioned in this terrific The New Yorker piece called What Idol of Dogs Gets Right About Japan is, is they, they speak about, we find out towards the end of the film that... These people can speak both English and Japanese fluently, but they choose to speak Japanese. And mm. there's something, quite, a, there's something mm. quite powerful and assertive yeah, about yeah. that. And I think that's uh, the picking up on the the whitewashing or orientalising of the, the film, that the criticism that's been levelled against it is obviously completely and utterly wrong and in 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 many ways shows a cultural insensitivity for the on, on the behalf of the critics mm. actually saying that because they haven't done their research and they haven't there's just a knee-jerk reaction to something that it's a white uh, filmmaker yeah. making it, a, a it comes from a well-meaning place but it's it's dangerously patronising, it assuming it is. that this is yeah. a culture that needs protecting. When mm. when and again, this is a point made in this piece, where the Japanese have really pushed their culture out into the world. It's in a similar way that American imperialism yeah, has yeah. used their culture in certain times and, and places. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not a case of you know when we get worried about one group of people making a film about a different group of people, the concern is that stopping that other group of people Mm. tell their own stories. That's not a situation here. And we get Mm. concerned about punching down. That's Mm. not an issue here. We are talking about a very powerful, uh, uh, culturally rich and influential nation. Yeah, it definitely came through as cultural appreciation, not appropriation to me, 100%. And then if we go into then it leads to who's allowed to make what art, which is ridiculous. Exactly. (laughs) And then we get into dangerous territory. It was interesting that the the young, very impassioned Western exchange student in the film, um, I love the way that they had her with a blonde afro. So So it was like the the kind of exact opposite of what... (laughs) a, a, you know, a natural-looking Japanese person would be without dyeing their hair and doing something completely crazy. And there's been a lot of kind of talk of that character being this, like, white saviour figure in the film. But in actual fact, without giving any spoilers away, that's not the case with no, what happens not, is it? No. with her no, character. No, no, not at all. It ends not up being all. this really big collaborative yeah. effort. And, and for me with Wes Anderson films, as you were talking about your reaction, I haven't been um, 100% fan of Wes Anderson, although when I do look back at his um, filmography, I'm, I, I think I'm being a little harsh because I do like them more than I, I give myself credit for. But he's... Um, he often starts very, very strongly. His films always start on a, a really high note with a, a lot of visual and thematic interest. And then I feel like they often run out of Turn puff out. in the, the third act. But this one really 
held its strength right from the start to the finish. I didn't feel like it had any purple patches. Yeah, I uh, felt like Fantastic it. Mr Fox was the only other film for me. I loved it. Yeah, that I'm on my was own on con- was consistent the entire way through. Like, yeah, yeah. But it is a film that started and um, within the first 10 minutes I was just like, rewind, I want to watch this again and again. Already the first 10 minutes I feel like there was so much in there, so much interesting, just situational stuff in in actually establishing what this film world was about, Mm. you know, so much in there. Yeah, even some of those shots of them travelling along the Trash Island are just so beautiful. I could have watched an hour of just them walking. Mm. And like looking at their the sort of the way the fur would move in the wind, just gorgeous. Yeah, I mean the mm. detail to the to the shots are just incredible. It's mm. such a beautiful film. Yeah, it's a very loving, affectionate film for sure. So Isle of Dogs is screening now in Victoria on general release. Three triple ah. Before we jump into discussing scaffolding, let me tell you a little bit about April uh, Amnesty, which is happening now at 3RRR. So subscription to RRR keeps the station running independently and free from corporate and government influence. April Amnesty is that time of year that we remind listeners who have lapsed subscriptions or haven't yet subscribed how important it is to support, um, your support is to our survival. So you might have been listening for a while and never subscribed. Your subscription might have lapsed or you might like to nudge a friend who listens to the station regularly. Everyone who subscribes during April goes into the running for all of the April Amnesty prizes, which are, Stewie, what are some of our prizes? We have uh, some VIP packs with the Melbourne Writers' Festival. There is a mini pass with the Melbourne International Film Festival. Zoos Victoria are giving out some uh, family passes to the Melbourne Zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary, or um, a safari at Werribee Open Range Zoo. What else is happening? Uh, Northside Records are giving out some uh, super funky LP CDs and 45s. So now is the time to subscribe because you could win one of those excellent prizes. Um, you can find out all the details for subscription at triplerr.org.au. Our final film that we're going to be looking at this evening is Scaffolding, which is Israeli director Martin Yer's coming-of-age story. Set in a small town outside of Tel Aviv, scaffolding centres on the gifted but troubled student Asher, who spends his days hanging out and ignoring his education. At home, Asher's single father, Milo, pressures him to take over his scaffolding business. While the two share a close relationship, emotional tensions are never far from the surface. When charismatic literature teacher Rami arrives, Asher is inspired to rethink his destiny and imagine more of himself. When a sudden tragedy strikes, he must decide what path he'll walk. Scaffolding is an autobiographical film from um, director Martin Yar, who was inspired by his real-life student, Asha Lex, who plays himself in the lead role. What do we make of Scaffolding? Oh, I want to know what... Oh, sorry. I say, that's an interesting detail I wasn't aware of. Yeah, didn't yeah. you? I, look, oh, I no. only just found that by looking it up. I wanted to know what Sally thinks of it because she's a teacher. <laughs> I'm a high school teacher. I'm a literature teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your story, Sally? No. <laughs> 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 um, I Yeah, it is very interesting that he has got a student of his to play. He has said that he's not playing himself in the film but or he has the same 
name. He's kept the same name, Asher, as the actor's name as well. Uh, he found him to be an interesting student, and it, the um, Martin Year has always wanted to be a filmmaker. This he's done documentary before. Um, so yeah, it, it is quite bizarre to me that you would pick a student out of your class and get them to star your, in your, your students film. are trying to think who's going to get a role in a film now you know <laughs> they don't listen to this <laughs> it isn't an, an interesting detail to have though because I, I must admit while thinking about this film i'm trying to figure out what is the point of difference i mm. see because I, you know, I also program for a film festival and until recently i used to program the the, the, the section for students so we got so many coming of age films and this there's a lot of that they're kind of on the same level of good but don't kind of go over further to be really distinguished mm. and this just mm. felt like yet another this is a decent coming of age film and my mind has changed about it I, I didn't care for it when I saw it and then the day after I thought oh, that was actually a pretty sophisticated film and then now I'm back to like eh. I kind of I really <laughs> did want to like this film and mm. it just didn't do it for me my main kind of gripe with it was I didn't like Asher. That's the thing, isn't I, it? I didn't I like him. Couldn't stand and him. And I found yeah. him and his <laughs> friends yeah. really menacing. Mm. Like yeah. particularly with um, the literature teacher's wife, there were some scenes there that I was just like, They're literally oh, standing over yeah, her. That mm. I, it just made me feel like, oh, okay. Um, mm. But I, I didn't. I didn't like him. I thought. He was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in these kind of films to work, you don't have to like them, but there needs to be something that makes you engage yep. and invested. Mm. And there wasn't that. Yeah. Just every time mm. I was on a screen, I just like, I hate you. I, yeah, he was just a buffoon. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You're, you're a really obnoxious person and in a way that I, I, it's just all too common and basic. Yeah. Mm. Like not in a way that's interesting me as a viewer to stay with your story. Yeah, I did like that the camera links increasingly lingered on him as he would be kind of processing a lot of his feelings and being contemplative and, and I felt like there was going to be a breakthrough moment and it was going to get somewhere but it never happens. So when the when there's that final scene, and I won't say, say what it is, when there's that final scene I was just like is that it? Mm. Like what was the point of this like hour and a half just to get to that one moment which is heartbreaking mm. but... Which is a nice moment. It is a really but, lovely moment but yeah, it just well, wasn't enough yeah. given how much we put up with him and his shit for the entire film. It just wasn't enough it was, was it a big payoff for me? Yeah, I think it was a very, it was a sophisticated film, but the same thing I was, I was thinking, is this just not my jam? Because, um, yeah, it's fine. I just watched it and I went, yeah, and it's, 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 it's well written and it had some really n nice lines. I did like it when there was the one point where Asher asked his teacher um, why you don't have children and he said, why don't you want to meet the people you're going to love more than anyone else? And I thought uh. that was an interesting little line to put in there and obviously it was riffing really heavy on metaphors and, you know, literature, the idea of metaphors in literature, even the name scaffolding, the idea that he's like he's building that scaffolding of his life he's building the structure of his life like it was just full of scaffolding that. is such a teaching buzzword as well oh, really oh, no. really <laughs> making okay. me laugh it's just like you've got to scaffold these students that's like a big buzzword really? so, so, <laughs> framework, framework <laughs> yeah is out. that's a so yeah. <laughs> 
verbs going on. They really use it as a verb that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I, I did appreciate the fact it looks like it's going to be Dead Poets Society and yet another inspirational teacher film. And there is a, a fairly dramatic turn of events that I did not see coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's what I thought was going to happen too. I was like, okay. Yep. Dead Poet Society, but yeah, I, mm. I appreciate well, the Michelle that Pfeiffer well. one. Or, Dangerous Minds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous Minds. Coolio um, soundtrack. <laughs> but um, but for and yeah. there are some rich metaphors. I agree, but there's also some very clunky moments. The the, the the moment that kind of horrified me and also gave me the giggles is the whole bit where the teacher takes away the phone and then teaches him how to use a newspaper. Oh, that killed oh, me. Yeah. That that no, so, uh, no, no, no. Even a no. seventeen-year-old knows what a newspaper looks like yeah. in yeah. today's Where's the world. Sports section. <laughs> yeah. Really. Like, <laughs> and just the wide-eyed wonderment on his face as he's uh, flicking through the newspaper, going, "What is this wonderful thing?" He did. The, the performances were excellent. I will mm. uh, definitely give them that. His I dad think, was a right dick. I mean, they, they, he nailed that. Role. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. did, and he's. Um, but also, Asher as himself <laughs> still was very seemed to, very very comfortable in front of the camera. It constantly surprises me how um, there's cases of direct and it happens again and again where there's a non-actor who often will play the leading role and be so convincing even if they are possibly playing themselves still seem so comfortable in front of the camera and to to pull off a dramatic performance and i and when i was watching it i was actually thinking this actor's really good he really sells that he kind of led with his with his shoulders you know he had Mm. this certain walk about him which was a menacing walk and sort of standover tactics but i think it also played well into the the politics without being political. It was very much an Israeli film without playing on the the Israeli politics or the situation, um, the racial situation in Israel that we see in so many films. Mm. It was just that it was a story that could be said anywhere set in Israel. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I do think that the um, Ashes performance was very convincing. Um, yeah, first time actor and he, yeah, he really got under my skin, so he did. Yeah, he really didn't like him, like didn't. like Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> the father, I thought, was a really fascinating character. I mean, for me, that's where the gold in the film is because he's such an asshole and he's so brutal in how he dictates what Asher can and can't do with his life. But there are so many lovely moments where, I mean, he genuinely loves Asher. Um, and for me, that that was a really touching moment where he's not just this kind of two-dimensional asshole that, you know, abuses his son. Um, there, are, there, were, there were moments where he's genuinely trying to set him up for with a good life that mm. will kind of reap benefits and be secure and sort of in the family business. There is some nice stuff there. Sorry to cut you off. Yep, yeah, there is some nice <laughs> stuff there. You're already not mansplaining everything. Um, <laughs> um, but there is absolutely uh, there is some very nice stuff with the uh, with the father son relationship and 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 kind of showing us that the father isn't an evil person. He thinks mm. he's doing the right thing. And I also like the fact that it wasn't necessarily the obvious types of abusive behaviour, but we just see that kind of insidious emotional abuse mm-hmm. and subtle belittling of his son and, and doing stuff to his son in front of the other guys and, and the yeah. devastating effect that has. Because his son is very alpha male as well and wanting to please his dad and, and be a man's man. So mm-hmm. he's, his father has this power that even he probably doesn't realise how powerful he is in, in cutting his son down. And... And, yeah, the transformation the father goes through the film is, is interesting mm. as well. This is by no means a bad film that no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to trash, but um, it just didn't 
kind of come home with me ultimately in the end. Mm. Yeah, the one thing, like, I, I know that it's sort of billed as him being torn between an emotional connection with his father and his charismatic literature teacher. Um, but those relationships didn't come through to me that much watching it. Mm. I didn't really feel a sort of connection for Asher with either of those. They kind of felt a bit more like, you know, plot devices for me. Um, yeah, the one thing that I did was most convincing was his performance, but that kind of, that thing within the plot just didn't really work for me, his connection with the literature teacher or with his father very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. I think the the literature teacher, I, I was waiting for it to notch up. A, yeah, same. There needed to be another event to create uh, more of a connection there. I think that because the, the, the literature teacher also just seemed... So freaking tired, you know. He didn't seem that Teachers inspired. Are tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the poor bastard. I that, that was me. <laughs> 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 I mean, it, and it didn't even seem that he was that engaged with Asher himself. He was, he was trying to help him, but. Um, you know, I, I felt that more than anything, he was just really tired. Yeah, it didn't feel like he's gone, this is a special student who I'm going to single out and I'm going to yeah. help. But he was just doing his job. It wasn't mm. Lulu in To Sir With Love, no. you know, with Sidney Poitier. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely be keen to see what this director does next. Yeah, yeah I would yeah. be too. Apparently he is um, uh, award-winning novelist. So I, I could see oh, the strength in his writing. Yeah, oh, yeah. I so I could uh, you, you could see that. Even the way it was shot, it was really beautifully shot. So there was the stuff there. I'm like you. It was just like oh, kind of frustrating. You go, give me more, give me more. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah, almost. The scaffolding <laughs> is now showing at Acme until April 19th, which I think is Thursday, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Mm. So if you want to see, I think it's actually quick. at um, uh, the classic. At oh, okay. Week too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So. so, Acme and the classic. Um, so you've been listening to Plato's Cave on Three Triple R with Stuart Richards, Emma Westwood, our very special guest Thomas Caldwell. Thank yeah. you so much for having me back. <laughs> <laughs> and Yay! myself, Sally Christie. I'll Come see you in three anytime. months. I'll do it again in three months or so, yeah. Good. So you can subscribe to Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you like to find your favourite podcasts. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for producing Plato's Cave and mm-hmm. to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.